Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we used to get rid of our clothes by either reselling them ourselves or donating them to charity. But big retailers are increasingly seeing the benefit of getting involved in the life cycle of their products by offering to take those used items back in exchange for discounts on new items of their clothing. What are the pros? What are the cons? We find out. Say it isn't so. The biggest selling pop duo of all time have gone from being hollow notes to Hall v. Oats. There is a lawsuit and a temporary restraining order filed by Hall against Oats. We look into what we know and if the pair has indeed lost that loving feeling for good. We finish our week-long look into living with chronic pain, the impacts, and the search for relief. Of course, uh, millions of Canadians live with chronic pain, 20% of us. So everybody either knows someone or are themselves living with it. Our final installment is the incredible story of Canadian-Australian activist and author Tara Moss. In 2016, she was hit by an agonizing condition called complex regional pain syndrome. Uh, We find out how she coped, her quest for relief, and how now she is living in remission virtually pain-free. But first, astronaut Joshua Kudrick is with us. He's set to become the 10th Canadian in space and the fourth to spend an extended time on the International Space Station. It was announced this week that the 41-year-old Albertan will be making that journey in early 2025 for a six-month stay on the ISS. We talk about his reaction and the road ahead. Well, his dreams of going to space are about to come true. Nine Canadians, by the way, have been to space. He will be the 10th name on that list. As we mark 40 years next month since the selection of the first group of six Canadian astronauts back in 1983, and ahead of the 40th anniversary next year of Mark Garneau becoming the first Canadian in space, it was announced this week that Alberta's Joshua Kutrick will be headed to the International Space Station. The 41-year-old will take part in a six-month mission aboard the ISS uh, beginning sometime in early 2025. The announcement was made by the Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry, François-Philippe Champagne, at the Canadian Space Agency outside of Montreal on Wednesday. Have a listen. Josh Kutrick will be the fourth Canadian astronaut to embark on the extended mission to the ISIS space station scheduled to launch aboard the CST-100 Starliner in early 2025 for a mission of six months. Josh. That must be the easiest job for a minister, eh? to announce who the next person going to space is. What, a, what, what an easy one. Uh, the minister also announced, by the way, that the CSA's Jenny Gibbons has been assigned as the backup astronaut to Canadian Jeremy Hansen for the historic Artemis II mission to the moon. That happened on Wednesday as well. So Kutrick is an engineer and colonel in the Royal Canadian Air Force from Fort Saskatchewan, Alberta. He's been working in Houston since 2021 on the Starliner. The minister mentioned that. Uh, that's a Boeing-built spacecraft designed to transport crew to the space station and the journey to the ISS that he'll be involved in will be the maiden voyage for that craft. So really interesting. He's only the fourth Canadian to take part or astronaut to take part in a long duration mission to the space station, uh, along with Robert Thirsk back in 2009, Chris Hadfield a decade ago, and David Saint-Jacques just about 2018-2019. And perhaps we all imagine what it might be like to spend time in space, but here's someone who will be spending the next 14 months getting ready to do just that. And Josh Kutrick joins me now from Houston. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Of course, and thanks. Good to be with you. I know just from watching just your background, and I've known other people who've applied because I was in Afghanistan for a bit, people went through the the 
the fighter pilot path and then applied to become astronauts. It's a very long journey. I mean, this must be a huge day to know that there's, in fact, a set time for you to go to space now. Yeah, you're right. It It is a very exciting time for me to, to have this news, to be one step closer to the ultimate dream that I've always had. Um, and so it is. It's it's super exciting. I'm enthusiastic about it. I'm also proud to be Canadian on days like today. I think it's remarkable that our country is is where it is, which is right on the very forefront of human spaceflight. We've always been there. Um, but we, you know, on days like this, we see that we're still there with this mission, with the Artemis II mission. We're still there as one of NASA's prime, most trusted partners. And uh, yeah, I'm grateful to have a role in all that. I was looking, of course, I, I'm, a, I'm about 12, or 12 years older than you are. And I was thinking when I was young, very young, astronauts were American and Russian, right? I mean, that's just the way it was. But you got Mark Garneau, I think, at age two. He was the first Canadian in space. You kind of grew up with Canadians in space. And that, that must have made, it must have left a different impression on people from your generation. It did. I think it's a, a very tangible benefit. It's one of many benefits to, to what we do in space. Um, Mark Garneau, Bondar, Thirst, McLean, Hadfield, Williams, Payette, uh, I'm probably missing a few, but but these were all people who had a large impact on my life. And I know they've had a large impact on thousands of young Canadians' lives. And these are folks who are now uh, close friends of mine, um, but we still talk a lot. We talk a lot about space, about Canada's space program. They mentor us. And I think that for me personally, but also for, for Canada, um, we're lucky to have had them. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it must be amazing to be able to have that connection because you think back to the early days and of course they didn't, I mean, I, I gather that there's a lot of, there's sort of a lot of camaraderie within the space community period, regardless of what nationality you are, but to have it within Canada. I remember being at the CSA in the late 90s and we still felt nascent and now it feels very much like it's been with us for a long time. Yeah, it has been. It's part of it's becoming it has become, I would say, part of our identity as a as a country. Um, it's something that we've, you know, drawn on for inspiration at all levels. I think young people, of course, but even our politics, this is something that has made us who we are. Um, and we should be very fortunate for that. I mean, that it's one of the things that I'm most proud of is our history in space. Um, and I'm I'm grateful for it because it's not just a matter of of course, of pride or inspiration. It's also a matter of of what we get from this, and we and we get a lot in terms of economic benefits. That the research, scientific discovery. I mean, we benefit as a country from taking these risks and from being out there. Like I say, on the leading edge of spaceflight, it's a good place to be. Right, and it keeps us uh, in, intimately involved with things like Artemis and so on, which is so exciting for Canada to be part of it. Tell me a bit about about this specific mission you're about to go on. I guess in tw- early in 2025, uh, and Starliner. That's really interesting. I mean, we've been reading about kind of Soyuz and and sort of different difficulty getting to the ISS now for quite a while, and this is going to to change, I guess, in the near future, thanks to Starliner. Yeah, we hope so. So this is a long duration exploration mission to the International Space Station, six months in duration launching, uh, we think, in early 2025. Uh, Aboard ISS, we'll be doing a lot of scientific research, a lot of demonstrations with new technologies, the things that we use space for now um, from a science perspective. But you alluded to the ride that we're going to be using to get there and back, and that's Starliner. This will be actually uh, the first maiden voyage, maiden operational long duration expedition for this spacecraft. Uh, and so it's something that our mission is is really focused on, is getting that spacecraft ready to fly, getting ourselves ready to fly on it, 
Um, and it's important. Uh, you talked about Soyuz and you, you sort of alluded to the the access to space. This is something that's really important from a strategic point of view for NASA, but also all of its partners like us here at the Canadian Space Agency. Um, the United States is is really trying to do this. They want to commercialize low Earth orbit. They have SpaceX and their vehicle, which is Dragon, that they've been flying for a couple years now. The second big part of that is this, this vehicle called Starliner. Uh, and for me personally, as a, as a previous test pilot, and now uh, also for our country to be directly involved with that, with the first flight of a, a new vehicle under this commercial space program, um, is, a, is just an all-around really good opportunity. Yeah, and and then and you're, you're it's the maiden voyage, right? So there's a I mean, not that there's a lot riding on it, but it is a big deal because it has been quite a while since uh, since there was that kind of easy access. Tell me a bit about what's going to happen when you're there. I think a lot of us are familiar with what goes on on the ISS, but still always always exciting. And you're going to be doing, I gather, spacewalks and there's science and there's 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 a lot to do. And, and I gather the training starts now. Yeah, the training has actually been been going on for a long time. Um, and even before we get assigned to these missions specifically, we're training uh, to build the foundation. We're training in, for, in the generalities of, of spaceflight. Uh, now that we're assigned, we're going to start a, a pretty intensive final 18 months where we'll be zoning in on, on some of the exact experiments, some of the exact procedures, some of the exact operations that we're going to be doing uh, with this vehicle and also with the space station itself. In terms of uh, an astronaut's life on board for six months or a year or however long uh, it is these days, it's basically the work falls into two main categories. Uh, there's a lot of scientific research, of course, on behalf of uh, scientists from, from across Canada, but also from around the world. So we have to learn how to do that. Uh, effectively. And then there's all the operations of the space station itself. So keeping this this hugely complex vehicle flying and in good working order, probably, you know, it's one of the most complicated things humans have ever invented or, or manufactured. And so uh, there's a lot. There's a lot of training. You have to be ready to fix anything. You, there will be spacewalks involved, like you mentioned. Um, and so it's that's the second part of the job, which is operating this this ginormous floating laboratory. Joshua, tell me about the, you know, I was looking back at the history of the ISS, 25 years now, it seems like it's just been with us uh, forever, but but yet it continues. What a what a mission, what a challenge to go up there and make sure that it's uh, that it's still in good shape. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're right. The, in fact, I think it's this week where, uh, where we celebrate the 25th anniversary of some of the very initial parts that were launched. Of course, um, it was assembled over many, many years, the better part of a little over a decade, um, because it was it was very difficult to do. It's one of the hardest things we've ever done. It took countries from all over the world to do it. If you if you want to imagine putting together something that's that big, the size of a football field, um, everything's been moving for all of those 25 years at these tremendous speeds, tens of thousands of miles an hour. So it's a it's a marvelous demonstration, I think, of human engineering and persistence and international collaboration. But uh, after it was built 10, you know, 10 some years ago, finished completion, we sort of stepped into the next phase of its operations, and that is the utilization of this. It, we didn't just build it to show us ourselves that we could. We built it so that we could do science there, do scientific research that can only be done in space. Um, and that's a big part of what we, we use it for on a day-to-day -day basis now. And it's a big part of what um, I'll be doing there on, on behalf of Canada.
So what do the next, uh, you were mentioning the next 18 months involves a, a sort of a different stage of your long time training. Uh, is that done here? Or do you get the crew, is the crew now going to get together and start working on sort of almost figuring out exactly what it's going to be like when you're up there? Yeah, the crew's together at this point, and uh, we, we spend our days together. Um, we're always together. Most of this training takes place uh, in simulators underwater and technical labs, uh, et cetera, at Houston, at Johnson Space Center. That's where we all live. Uh, but there's also a fair bit of travel involved. It's an international effort. And so um, we're going to be in uh, Japan and Europe and even up in Canada quite a bit. Um, learning all of these different experiments, learning all of these different systems, and and traveling to the different places where these systems were originally designed and built. It, it sounds, I mean, I, I know you've been, been through all this, but it sounds rigorous. I mean, it must be daunting in some ways to actually go through it. I know you've, you've been doing this for a long time, and you've watched others do it as well, but it still must be daunting as an individual to go through that level of that intensity of training. Yeah, it is. It's uh, you have to be passionate about learning. I mean, it's not. It's it's definitely not the easiest job out there. Um, there is a fair bit of stress. There's a ton of learning, and the learning doesn't take place over months. I mean, it takes place over years and years. I'm stepping into a, a final 18 month period here now in terms of preparation. But I've been at Johnson Space Center in Houston training. Uh, on and off for the better part of six years now. So uh, there is a lot to know. There's a lot to learn. Uh, that makes the job very challenging. But at the same time, on the other side of the coin, uh, this is something that we're all extremely passionate about. We've dreamt our whole lives of doing it. And so um, every day in a, in a way just feels like a gift that we're, we're grateful for. And always nice to represent your home province too. I mean, I know this is this is a national, international thing, but it's always nice to represent your own province. I know, of course, other astronauts in the past have spoken fondly about where they grew up and how they thought about space, where they were, because it could be different if you grow up in downtown Toronto or you grew up on a cattle farm in Alberta. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I am proud of coming from Alberta. Um, it's still one of my. I've worked, lived, uh, traveled all over the world, but one of my my most favorite places on this planet is still rural Alberta out east, east of Edmonton. I have very fond memories of being there, of being there, looking at the sky, being inspired by the sky and uh, and dreaming about traveling into it. So absolutely. Yeah. I have a final question because it's also the 10 year anniversary, I think, of Chris Hadfield uh, recording Major Tom on the space station. I was just wondering if they make everyone learn an instrument now or you have to get sort of social media savvy <laughs> before, before they set you up these days. Is that part of your training? Yeah, you're the first one to say that, but I think you're right. Actually, it is ten years now, and uh, no, we I play a little bit of guitar, nothing like Chris. Um, I wouldn't even try to try to imitate that. But uh, and then, of course, social media is a big, big part of what we do now. But but that's also a little bit of the responsibility I think that goes along with this. That is sharing that experience, sharing the adventure, and sharing the perspective, uh, because there's value in that. Not for young Canadians, but but for people all over the world, space is something that brings us together and, and we want to make sure it continues to do so. Yeah, I guess we'll leave the singing to Chris, but the spacing is what you're about to do. Uh, congratulations once again, Joshua. I appreciate your time tonight. Well, thanks for having us. Uh, just like all of us, you've probably been bombarded with talk in the past year or so, but the impact that artificial intelligence will have on just about every facet of our lives, uh, it's set to disrupt just about any industry you can think of, according to all the reporting and all that's out there. We may not 
be quite there yet, but it feels like it's approaching at rapid speed. So Global's current affairs show, The New Reality, this week sets out to explore how AI is improving our daily lives in ways that would have been hard to imagine just a few years ago. It looks at areas from healthcare to education, airlines and entertainment, where Canada is on the leading edge of the AI revolution. It also looks at some of the potential downsides, the critical risks, the need for guardrails. Uh, here from the show, or uh, from the segment, are interviews with both Deloitte's Jazz Jazz and Ontario, Ontario Tech Professor Isabel Pedersen. It is incumbent on organizations and businesses themselves to not only wait for things like regulations and these types of directives coming in, but also go down the path of really understanding how can they self-regulate in the interim to earn the trust of not only your customers and your constituents outside the organization, but also your workforce inside the organization. The way that we propose and strategize technologies don't rarely, if ever, turn out. The outcome is always different. That's really interesting because do we really know which way AI is going to turn out? No, (laughs) we don't know. That's scary. Absolutely. There you have it. Global National Correspondent Mike Drolet, obviously, is the reporter on this segment on The New Reality, which airs Saturdays at 7 on Global. He joins me now from Toronto. Mike, thanks for your time. Welcome back. And what a timely story. Finally, this is the uh, the biggest game changer in the world um, that the world's ever seen, really, when it comes to technology. Think about like the steam engine, what that did, what electricity did, what uh, computers in the last century did. AI is going to be, it's going to top all of that easily. Yeah. And yet we're, we, we're so very much at the beginning of it. Um, it. It's interesting because you mentioned those other eras, and I'm not sure whether even when those first computers came out back in the 70s, you know, those giant computers back in the 60s, I don't think we understood how much it was going to change things at the time. And yet with AI, it seems like everyone's keenly aware of just what a game changer it's going to be. And that's what makes it, that's what makes it a bit scary, actually. Before November of last year, had you ever heard of ChatGPT? No. Had you ever even thought about the fact that you could possibly use AI in your day-to-day life? You could access it on your computer, on your phone, to be able to ask it to do things here and there? Um, it, it, no, of course not. And yet it's here and it's moving so quickly, faster than, than you know anybody would have thought. I mean, the problem we had with this story was when we were thinking about it, we're like, well, why don't we do something on this? And then you'd be like, well, actually, a week from now, that's probably going to be old. Yeah. So we're trying to find some issues and some some companies that were going to be relevant, you know, a a month down the road when the story eventually aired. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, clearly going to a company like Air Canada that that has both its good and bad reputation was an interesting place to start because absolutely a company like that is one that would turn to AI to help solve some of those longstanding and very time consuming issues and such critical issues to their business that they have. I mean, airlines are, it's a rough game. I mean, everybody's going to be angry about every little thing and it's going to be online and complain. And Air Canada takes its fair, it gets its share of black eyes week to week, day to day even. Uh, So yeah, we went to, I saw, you know, I met this guy at this AI conference and he was the head AI guy for Air Canada. He started laying out what he was going to do. And I was like, this is unbelievable. So I went up, started chatting with him. And yeah, you know, right now, the first thing they're doing is they're figuring out their schedules because it's a it's a big process. It's a big deal trying to figure out how all the planes are going to take off and land and where they're going to go and what times. Huge. 
AI can do that in a split second and they can sort of, and they can arrange it so then they can optimize when those planes are flying. Um, next year, they're going to be bringing in, uh, they're going to be using AI to optimize how they, uh, how they service these airplanes. Right now, they have 100 people working on a schedule to figure out when planes are going in for like, you know, engine repairs or this or that. 100 people. And it takes them weeks and weeks and weeks to figure things out. AI is going to be able to do it in 15 minutes. And AI is not replacing these jobs. It's just making them more efficient and allowing these people to do other things within that sort of realm that where they work, as opposed to just working on a timetable, on a schedule. So all of this stuff, is it's, it's all intended to save time, save money, be more efficient, and eventually, you know, make the company better. And if, if it works, I mean, the best thing is that he said to me, if it works, his name is Bruce Stam, um, you won't even notice. Right. And that's kind of the optimum. I mean, people are still going to complain about this. I mean, they'll find anything to complain about, as you know. <laughs> I thought but, it, was a, uh, it was a brave choice. for It was a brave choice to to go and look at that company because it could be such a lightning rod. It's interesting, mm-hmm. though, because I think one of the, and you, you did a great uh, interview at Deloitte as well, where they sort of showed you about mm-hmm. what nursing, might, nursing assistants could look like in the future with AI. I guess the thing that people are always fear, fearful of is that every time we hear the the, they hear the term, it will make things more efficient. It usually involves job losses, right? And you bring this up in the story. Well, I mean, job losses are the big thing. There will be job losses at some some point. I mean, think about our industry. I mean, we used to have camera operators uh, in studio. I mean, you don't have that anymore. I mean, there's a, certain things just don't don't exist. Yeah. Um, you're gonna you're gonna get some of that. But in the short term, at least, I mean, they say this is sort of a, we're still in the short term with with AI because it is still so new. We're going to see a lot of stuff propped up. We're going to see a lot of jobs sort of aided by this. Down the road, yeah, we have to start thinking about that. And you better start thinking about what kind of degree you want to do. Or if your kids are going to university, you better start thinking about what degrees they're doing and really think about it. But for now, it's it's really going to be out there to to sort of help people along. And you mentioned this nurse, nursing assistant. And basically, the, the gist of it is, is that um, when you go home, you're sort of left to your own devices. You're told you're usually sent home uh, and they, they give you a list of things. Well, you need to take these medications. You got to do these exercises. You got to do this and this and this. Well, now you're going to be able to speak to a nurse and you're going to have to answer the nurse because you have a conversation with this thing, which is crazy. And they give it real human mannerisms as well, which is interesting. Yeah, um, it, was, it was it was impressive. <laughs> I mean, it's still new, but it, wow. I mean, it, it was impressive to watch. If there's anything serious that comes up, oh, you know, I'm having complications with this, and then, oh, then it transfers you over to a real human being. But all of this other stuff that really just takes time and is really sort of, I hate to say mindless, but it's really, it's it's stuff that you don't need to have a human being wasting their time to do, like a nurse. And and it allows nurses to go off and do other things. And uh, it's, it's, it's brilliant, really. And they're doing a lot of sort of things like that in healthcare. You know, I, I ran into this other company, didn't use it in the story, but there's this company in Toronto. It's a, a combination of a Canadian Korean company, and they're looking at, um, uh, at, at how to treat uh, uh, diseases in, in hospital and how to treat people who end up getting sick, like uh, with bloodborne diseases. And it's, it, it all it does is it takes your, your, your statistics that you're doing and it's able to predict whether or not you're going to end up getting it. Sepsis. 
And wow. if you're going to suffer from sepsis, and sepsis is a huge problem. I mean, 18,000 people a year in Canada die from sepsis, and except from septic shock. Uh, and if they're able to say, because if a nurse is monitoring at a big hospital, like say 100 beds, it's really hard to look at all those stats. It's all just, you know, like EKG readings and all that. If this thing's able to say, you know what, you have a problem with bed 17, there's a 82% chance that this person is going to develop sepsis and, you know, they can go and do something about it. Brave New World, Mike. Uh, The new reality is on Saturday at 7. Thanks so much for your time. Much appreciated. Thank you. We were talking about AI in the last 15 minutes, and uh, the new reality is doing a big piece on artificial intelligence. Uh, It's going to air tomorrow at 7 p.m. on Global. Uh, This is a really interesting initiative. The aim of coding for veterans is straightforward. For the past four years, in collaboration with the University of Ottawa, the organization has been retraining military vets in cybersecurity and coding. So far, more than 500 of them have gone through the program. There's big demand for their skill set. Obviously, there's no equivalent in the U.S. So now Coding for Veterans is taking their program stateside and teaming up with the University of Southern California to offer the same kind of online courses to American vets. Now, when you think of Southern California, there is perhaps no bigger bigger single-day event than the Rose Bowl in Pasadena and the annual Rose Bowl Parade. So to announce their arrival... In the U.S., Coding for Veterans is going to be the only Canadian organization to have a float in the 135th Annual Rose Bowl Parade. With more on the initiative, the program, and the parade, Jeff Musson is Executive Director of Coding for Veterans, and uh, he's with me now. Thanks for your time. Uh, Thanks for having me, Ben. What an interesting program to be able to take the already, uh, we've always been told, and I spent some time around the military back when, and we've always been told about the incredible skill set that veterans have, if only there are ways of training, of retraining, in other words, to get them into positions where they may be able to use those skills. Yeah, and so what's great about our program is it really helps Canada's military veterans retrain for jobs in software development and cybersecurity. And when you look at the soft skills that someone from our military has, things like attention to detail, leadership, teamwork, those are the qualities that you want in your best employees. So uh, it's a great fit. And we always like to say you transition from you know uh, the battlefield to now cyberspace. Right. How did it begin? Where did Where did the idea come from? Yeah, so I actually come from the tech sector. I didn't serve in the military, but I had a number of family members that did. And, you know, um, I'm sure you're aware that in Canada, um, there's over 187,000 IT jobs that are going unfilled. And so, um, you know, this program here becomes a great way in which for veterans to help you know, start backfilling those jobs, plus giving them a really stable career uh, after they served. And the program being delivered 100% online through the University of Ottawa, um, people can literally take the program from coast to coast. Right. I I guess that's a big deal, too. So they can still stay within their own communities with with their families and so on, not have to make those big moves to a university city, for instance. How's the reception been so far? I gather it's been pretty popular. Yeah, absolutely. We started off with five uh, students in our program in the fall of 2019, and we just had our 500th student enroll in September. And we've also had a number of military veterans from the U.S. apply to our program, but there was no funding mechanism for them. So we have now, as of January 1st, 2024, are expanding the program to allow U.S. military veterans to now take it. And the program will be delivered in partnership 
in the U.S. through the University of Southern California, just like it's delivered in partnership in Canada through the University of Ottawa. Well, I mean, this has been one of those longstanding issues about retraining, and we often talk about retraining, but it's not an easy thing to find or do. And the more you can sort of pave the way for people to, to try and dis- learn new skills and put them to, to use, where have, uh, where have your graduates been winding up? I guess some of them are done, right? If they started back in 2019, where have they found work? Yeah, so they honestly, we have over an 85% placement rate in our program, and they have found jobs in Canada's banks, uh, defense contractors, uh, the federal government. Um, Some of them have actually taken the entrepreneurial uh, route and started up their own cyber businesses. So, um, you know, it's been a success from beginning to end. Right. And uh, and just in terms of, of what are they finding when they get out into this world? Because it can be a bit of a, I guess it can be a bit of a, uh, a culture change from the military into sort of the we always think of the tech world as being kind of loose and and you know people playing i don't know i'm, I'm imagining google and people playing foosball and beanbag chairs that doesn't look like your average military hq right no absolutely but we've introduced an organizational behavior course as part of the curriculum that all students have to take and when you um you know uh and, and you're absolutely right um, you have a different cultural mindset, but we bring in guest speakers from industry. We, we allow, uh, those that have sort of blazed the trail ahead of them to, to uh, provide some guidance or mentorship. But we've also helped military veterans prepare for their jobs by helping them with their resume, which a lot of them have never had to put together. In addition to helping them build out LinkedIn profiles, it's, it's a completely different mindset than what they're used to or in the, used to in the military. Right. How about from the other side? How have the employers been? What what feedback are you getting from them? Oh, it's been a phenomenal success on that on that side. And we actually have employers reaching out to us for our graduates because they make for the best employees. Everything from the leadership, the attention to detail, um, uh, things that are really you know uh, on the high uh, needs list of companies in Canada. Um, really, the military veterans are helping to you know in those leadership roles in these companies. For any veteran listening, any words of advice, just sort of things to so ex, sort of expectation setting? Yeah. So for us with our program, um, believe it or not, the largest area that we draw from are non-tech roles in the military and specifically infantry and artillery. And so our program is designed for those that don't have a technical background, but they have an eye aptitude for, um, you know, online learning, uh, for being in the tech sector. So for us, um, you know, we welcome everyone to apply. And really the key thing is, is, um, let's get you out of your comfort zone, right? And so when you, you know, go into our program, you know, transitioning into the tech sector is a new world, but you will be highly successful upon completing our program. And I gather, given this new partnership with USC and taking this program to American veterans as well, this is going to lead to something up pretty unique, unique on uh, right around New Year's Day. Speaking of USC. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we actually have a float in the Rose Bowl parade 
Uh, it's the 134th or 135th running of the Rose Bowl Parade, and Coding for Veterans has a float there. And we will be having military veterans on this float uh, in Pasadena, California. We're really excited about bringing our program to U.S. veterans. And, and quite frankly, I think it's a cool story that you have a Canadian organization um, helping to retrain U.S. military veterans in software development and cybersecurity. Yeah, and also being the only, I think you're the only Canadian float or Canadian-based float in the parade itself, which is perhaps the most famous, other than maybe the Macy's uh, parade, maybe the most famous parade around. Yeah, exactly. We are the only Canadian float, and there's an opportunity for individuals if they want to join us during decorating week, in essence, we have to put 15,000 roses on this float between December 26th and December 31st. And, um, you know, we welcome any of your listeners uh, to reach out to us if they're going to be in the L.A. area uh, to join us during that week. Yeah, I, I know this is not the kind of thing you'd learn in basic training, but I know that anybody I've ever met who's in the military could probably take help you with that kind of task. Attention to detail, goal oriented. It should work out. It should work well, out. Absolutely right. And you know what? It's just going to be a fun time. And, uh, you know, what better way to announce the launch of our program than to be in uh, the Rose Bowl Parade in Pasadena, California? Yeah, well, we'll be, we'll be watching for sure. Jeff, thank you so much. I appreciate it, Ben. If you've been listening, you'll know we've been looking into the issue of chronic pain, its causes, the impact, and the long and often frustrating search for relief. Of course, as we've said all week, about one in five Canadians, 20% live with chronic pain. It's about 8 million people. Uh, so chances are that you or someone you know is one of them. If you're older, it could be many more than just one. We began the week with Lara Pingway. She works for the Globe and Mail and wrote a long piece about the onset of her chronic back pain in 2018 and the very tough search for solutions, one uh, that despite an improvement since then, continues to this day. We found out how the medical community's understanding and approach to pain is evolving. Up until very recently, it wasn't even a specialty that you could study in medicine uh, up until about maybe eight, nine years ago. Um, we also learned how the overprescription of opioids remains a big problem, especially for older Canadians who are obviously more uh, prone to chronic pain, or at least more of them suffer from it. Uh, and last night, Grant uh, Fedoric, president and physiotherapist at Leading Edge Physiotherapies, Physiotherapy was with us to talk about his work with patients living with chronic pain and the need for a balanced approach to pain management. Acknowledging it and actually seeking help is the first step. And it's finding the right treatment for the right person at the right time. And that's that's really important too. So just because something hasn't worked doesn't mean that it won't work at another time at a different stage in the process as well. So I hope plays a big role. And I guess that's kind of what I love to tell people is that there's there might be something don't give up. That's for sure. Well, not giving up is certainly the moral of the story for our next guest. Uh, we're wrapping up the week on a positive note with the story of best-selling Canadian-Australian author and disability advocate Tara Moss. She's lived with a condition called Complex Regional Pain Syndrome since 2016 CRPS. I hope I get that right. She's developed She developed a condition uh, that involves sort of abnormal inflammation or nerve dysfunction following a hip injury more than seven years ago. Um, it's an agonizing one. I've been reading about it a bit today, but it just, I mean, it is truly sometimes called the suicide disease because it's that agonizing. But earlier this year, following two and a half months of treatment at a facility in the U.S., she was able to climb a flight of stairs without pain 
for the first time since 2016. Uh, Moss, you may well know, is the author of fiction and nonfiction, including 2014's The Fictional Women, nonfiction, uh, the Billy Walker series, including 2022's The Ghosts of Paris, uh, the Pandora English series, including 2020's The Cobra Queen, and many, many more. Uh, documentary maker, presenter, journalist, UNICEF National Ambassador, Disability Advocate, and 2023 Canadian Pain Society Pain Champion. Tara, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Ben, for connecting today. And thank you for spotlighting chronic pain this week. It means a lot to those of us who've experienced pain, and it, I think, can go some way to really significantly changing some of the attitudes towards pain and hopefully making things better for Canadians living with pain in the future. So thank you. Yeah, I mean, it, like everything, it was it involved. You know, my wife's had some back pain recently. I was reading. I started paying more attention. I think this is what happens. You start paying more attention to other people talking about chronic pain. Um, what are? I mean, I guess just your story is one that I think is is kind of will be very familiar to a lot of people. Perhaps not the level of pain, but but how it just the onset and how you all of a sudden find yourself having to navigate this world that that is can be very frustrating. It can really change everything. So, so as you mentioned, I had a hip injury back in the start of 2016. So I'm nearly at the eight-year anniversary of this really life-changing event in my life. Um, life-changing, well, a huge life-changing event. So for me, that hip injury led to uh, complex regional pain syndrome that started in the hip and then moved down to the full right leg. Um, and it's one of the reasons it's called regional. So complex regional pain syndrome will often come from a fracture or injury from a limb. Um, it will tend to start affecting the full limb. And so anyone listening right now feels like those are the types of symptoms that they're having, or they know someone who has that. It's a good thing to just be aware of the condition, um, because unfortunately, most people are not. And you'll even find it difficult sometimes to find doctors who have even heard of it. And it's marked by some of the most uh, extreme pain that we are aware of in terms of the McGill pain scale at rates above uh, amputation of a digit without anesthetic or childbirth without anesthetic. So just to give context to um, how painful complex regional pain syndrome is, for me, it felt like I was being burned alive in the areas that were affected. And unfortunately, about two and a half years ago, it spread to the full right side of my body. So it, it spread upwards with ip ipsilateral spread, it's called. Um, and then one uh, side of my body was like on fire. For me, it felt like a cold fire, like a like burning ice that I couldn't get out yeah. of. And the other side was normal. Um, and so it was very, very difficult. But for me, it's astounding that um, I was not really given a lot of hope by some of the specialists that I saw. Uh, and I'm here to say that there is hope for people with CRPS, that remission is possible. And even after being... Um, Someone who's experiencing such a debilitating condition, you know, I was using a wheelchair, I was housebound at times. Um, even after years and years of that, it is possible to have pain out of your life and to be able to, to do those simple things again that you used to enjoy. And that's, you know, for me, been the miracle of the last few months. 
Yeah, I mean, you you, you have such an incredible. You're such an active person. Period. And I was sort of looking through the mm-hmm. time that you've spent uh, living with living with the pain, and how you yeah. always seem to maintain a pretty. I mean, this is. I'm sure there were darker times, but but you seem to maintain a really upbeat attitude about trying to kick the try to beat this or find some way out of it. Mm. Um, yeah, trying to I, find I guess, a yeah. way. You know, uh, sorry to interrupt, trying to find a way is so important because, you know, as was mentioned earlier in your program, um, you need to find what works for you and when it will work. So there are tools that can help you with your pain um, and finding a really full toolkit is is so important. So just because, for example, um, you know, a certain physical therapy exercise isn't seeming to do anything right now doesn't mean it doesn't have value or might not help in the future. Say things like meditation or box breathing, which are taught in some of the pain programs and including the Royal Jubilee Hospital Pain uh, Clinic program that I went through, which was excellent. Even if those things seem not to help right now, they all add up. And so you need to have a full toolkit to really help yourself through this difficult thing. And if you're lucky, find the treatments and find the doctors who can really help you with your individual circumstances, because pain is different for everyone. That's right. Of course, you are from Victoria, where where I am tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, the what I've been hearing all week too is just is is the mental impact of the, the mental health impact mm. of pain. Sometimes can be so difficult. Just the and that's why sometimes, as doctors were saying all week about sort of the search for that silver bullet, you know, that magic bullet that'll just make it all go away with a single pill or in a single moment. Uh, that really the, the mental health aspect of this is a really important one as well. It is. And, and I would really challenge that um, general assumption that we have that there is going to be a magic bullet or, or the one thing. Um, in most cases, if you have chronic pain, a multidisciplinary approach is going to be the one that will be successful. And unfortunately, in some places, there's more of a palliative care attitude towards treating people with pain. So you're just dampening their pain, but maybe not getting to the bottom of why it's there, why it's not going away or what the body or the mind, body, spirit might need. So for me, I think it's incredibly important to yeah have that toolkit, hold on to hope and realize that there's not going to be just a single intervention that's going to help. You're going to need probably multiple modalities in order to unpick kind of what what are the keys in your particular circumstance. Um, for me, as you mentioned, um, I was fortunate to find a specialist clinic. Uh, there were other Canadians there. Um, it's, it's difficult to have to go down to another country to get specialist care, but in my case, it worked. And even there, it's not one modality that they use. They use multiple modalities over a period of months in order to rehabilitate the nervous system and stop that pain signal that's out of control. And being able to give patients access to that kind of care is something I would really love to see um, more broadly available to people in the future. So they don't have to dampen the pain. They can actually live without it. Tara, tell me a bit about what what happened with the... I was watching, obviously, the Instagram video that you posted mm. going up the stairs and it, it was it was jaw-dropping it really was yeah yeah even coming back now to victoria after being in the u.s for three months every day i will run into someone who cannot believe what they're seeing when they see me standing upright and walking freely 
um, it's been quite a transformation. So as I mentioned earlier, I was using a wheelchair for some years. This is typical for people with lower limb complex regional pain syndrome. It makes weight bearing very uh, difficult to tolerate. Um, and for me, I began my healing really, I mean, I, I never stopped trying. I tried pretty much everything, um, everything that was available uh, to me. And the Royal Jubilee Pain Clinic program is one I highly recommend. And they brought in some self-management um, tools, which I thought were really helpful. Um, they looked at things like meditation and box breathing. I know this doesn't sound like a big deal to people in pain right now, but what they're hoping with this and what happened with me as well is you start to engage the parasympathetic nervous system a little bit more because if you're experiencing chronic pain, if you have CRPS or indeed conditions like PTSD, your body's most likely locked into a kind of fight or flight mode most of the time. And in order for your body to heal on a cellular level, you need to be in that parasympathetic uh, mode, which is also your rest and digest. Um, so having CRPS meant that I was in fight or flight a lot and I couldn't seem to switch that off. So literally relaxing the body in, in a really disciplined way started to help. But I couldn't get that specialist treatment that I needed personally until I went to a specialist clinic. And for me, that meant going down to the Spiro Clinic in Arkansas, of all places. That was a three-year plan for us. We had to save up because it's all out of pocket. We um, bought a caravan. We went down as a whole family, brought the pets and everything because we didn't know how long we would need. And uh, we lived just near the medical clinic down in Arkansas, um, and we're there for three months. I had about 165 hours, I've calculated, of, of like hands-on active uh, treatments, um, and that eventually was successful. When um, my allodynia stopped, it was miraculous to me. It, it, for those who don't know what it is, it's when you have a abnormal uh, pain stimulus from normal things like, you know, a bit of hair moving across your skin or a breeze or a temperature change. When that was gone, I mean, when I could sit on a regular seat, I couldn't believe it. And then a few weeks later, um, the pain was was lower and lower. And finally, I was in remission. So I'm so pleased to be in remission. And this is possible for people with chronic pain. It's just, um, it's a difficult journey. It's really hard to find what's going to work for you. But you've got to hold on to that hope. And we've got to give people more options. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one thing you've talked about a lot, that one of the big problems mm. now is that the, tr the the services available to those living with chronic pain yeah. have not at all caught up with the demand and the need. That's right. That's right. And also just the understanding of how pain works and how it's not the same. Like uh, acute pain is not the same as chronic pain. The pathways are different. And what people individually need is a, you know, it's layered. It's not one dimensional. And so there's not a one size fits all even for people with the same condition, there are, um, you know, there are guidelines, but when it comes to something like CRPS, unfortunately, it's a rare condition. And so even the guidelines, they're not there. Um, most of the treatments offered people with CRPS are actually off-label, you know, so you're trying um, drugs that are for Alzheimer's patients, you're trying like ketamine infusions, which are basically uh, being anesthetized to reduce the pain, but it's not getting to the bottom of actually why your body is, is having this CRPS response and kind of getting to the root of it. And so I think keeping that in mind that um, we, just, we don't have to just have this palliative care model, 
for people with chronic pain. Yes, we want to treat the pain, but we also want to find out if we can, why it's there and heal the cause if that's possible. And to keep that in mind is a really important priority for people. Tara, you're probably best placed to tell listeners tonight who are living with chronic pain, give them, I mean, advice is a tough one, but, but just maybe mm-hmm. an encouraging word because it feels like that can go such a long way. It really can. You know, it's, it may sound twee to someone to say, hold on to hope, but I really am living proof that even when specialists tell you, you will never recover, you can. I'm here today to say that it is possible. I've lived through this. And for me and my family, it means the world. And I believe pain patients matter. I believe our recovery and remission matters. And even if a a condition is not curable, strictly speaking, it is possible to get it into remission and get a person to a stage where they can enjoy their life and be without pain. And I think that's a really important goal. It's taken maybe a bit um, you know, it's been kind of recently that we've started to see that as a, it, it's its own goal rather than pain just being, you know, an offshoot of something else. We have to recognize pain as a condition uh, in its own right and uh, one that's worthy of research and also one that's worthy of treatment. And we all deserve that treatment. Well, Tara, thank you so much for sharing your story. It is a remarkable one. Um, and, and congratulations on, on all of it. And thank you so much. We'll be, mm-hmm. Please keep in touch. I will. Thank you so much, Ben, and thank you for spotlighting chronic pain. Well, never has a Hall & Oates song been so prophetic, has it? Say It Isn't So, one of their cool hits from their greatest hits album. I guess that was all the way back in 1983. I loved Hall & Oates as a kid. One of the first concerts I ever went to see, I mean, I've been to a couple of concerts, but this one I remember vividly because a friend of mine, his mom took three of us. We went as like three 11-year-olds to see Hall & Oates at the Montreal Forum back in 1981. This goes back a mighty, mighty long time. Um, and I, I just thought they were fantastic. And always have. You know, I've always really liked Hall & even these days, I'll still I still have Hall and Oates on my iTunes and so on. They, of course, met all the way back in the late 60s at Temple University in Philly. They were students there. They signed to Atlantic Records in 72. They had some early hits with songs like She's Gone and Sarah Smile. Then Rich Girl sort of – then they went to RCA. Rich Girl was massive. There was a couple of fallow years there. Then back in 1980 with Kiss on My List, and you've lost that love and feeling that John Oates sang, actually, uh, that cover of the Righteous Brothers song. And then they just went on this run in the 80s that was just – massive, you know, with private eyes and I can't go for that. And then kiss on my list, um, out of touch, man eater. I mean, there was just a bevy of top 10 hits. They became the best selling pop duo of all time. And they still perform together now and then. I mean, they kind of went their separate ways uh, in the 90s, then into the knots. Daryl Hall did his own stuff. John Oates has been doing his own stuff. Um, but they ever they would get back together and play every once in a while. But all of a sudden this week, news emerges that there's been a lawsuit um, in this relationship. So Hall and Oates becomes Hall v. Oates. Uh, there's been a restraining order taken out, a temporary one by Daryl Hall against John Oates. We don't really know all the details about that. Apparently, the legal battle, I mean, it's it's confidential to some extent, but there were reports out today that it's all about a, John Oates's plan to sell off his share of a joint venture that would violate the terms of business agreements they had forged together. Anyway, I mean, there are, there are clearly some problems in Hall and Oates land. Now, uh, not that long ago, Daryl Hall spoke with Bill Maher on his show, and he sort of telegraphs that there were some cracks, or at least there had been some long-time cracks in this relationship. But you have a, I mean, you have a partner, so it's a little different. Than- I don't have a partner. 
You not, think John Oates is my partner? You still tour together, don't you? Yeah, but he's not my partner. Well, you're part He's my business partner. Uh, he's oh, not geez, my well, look what I've stumbled into here. He's, I, not, I, he's I, not my creative partner. Daryl Hall there. I mean, this conversation goes on for a while there. So, I mean, being a big Hall & Oates fan, I was just a little taken. I was a little sad. I have to be, I have to be honest with you. I was a little sad because I don't know them. Um, there was an opportunity at one point to interview Daryl Hall. It never quite worked out on the show. I don't know them at all, but I feel like they've been buddies that I've been watching for a really long time, right? And to find out that they're actually having, that they aren't that close and they're having some troubles and all is not right in Hall and Oates land was a bit disappointing. Eric Alper, of course, has been on the show before. He's a publicist and music commentator. We often go to him on topics such as this one, and we decided to do that again today. Eric, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I, I I was just saying the guy grew up a, a massive Hall and Oates fan, and I still yeah. love Hall and Oates. And I think one of the things that's been odd about reading about this is that there's lots of bands. You know, I mean, obviously, if you like Oasis, you know the Gallagher brothers have always hated each other, but or, or of late at least, there's bands <laughs> where you know the tension exists. But with Hall and Oates, I always thought, well, you know, they're Hall and Oates. They must, you know, Hall and yeah. Oates. So, yeah, this is this has been an odd one. Yeah, and especially because of the way that it came down, like. You know, there was um, still they were still touring up until, I guess, midway through the COVID period. Hall, um, Daryl Hall has gone back to his uh, house of Daryl or Daryl's house um, YouTube channel where he has some tremendous artists performing live and in an acoustic setting. Um, John Oates has continued to release his own solo material. Um, but then all of a sudden, this kind of came down this week that. Daryl had filed a motion for a temporary restraining order against John Oates. And then it came out that Daryl Hall wasn't too fond of when people called their relationship to be um, a working relationship, like a, a musical. A partnership. It was, yeah, it like, was a like, partnership. Yeah. He yeah. made it very clear that this was strictly a business you know, transaction um, and with no information at all on what really caused it. And now, you know, we're, we're finding out a little bit with dips and drabs. A lot of it has to do with contracts and debt and the fact that Holland Oates uh, or at least John Oates sold part of his catalog to a third party company. So it's interesting because it's not like Oasis where we heard of them literally punching each other the minute that they both got out of the yeah. wounds. Yeah, or Stuart Copeland and Sting, who notoriously dislike, or, or at least Stuart Copeland notoriously dislike Sting. But yeah, I mean, some bands are famous for the animosity. Hall and Oates were almost, to me, were almost the opposite. They were sort of this kind of ideal of a duo. Yeah, and it's kind of like who who do we now believe are really truly in love? Like you, you know, yeah. like it's one of those things where you you hear about couples breaking up, and you're like, oh, I guess I don't believe in love anymore. And with with Holland Oates, you're kind of like, oh, this this kind of ruins a little bit of the gleam that we all had for them um, because they made it so public. And, you know, whether it's Hall and Oates, whether it's Morrissey and Johnny Marr from the Smiths, whether it's Simon and Garfunkel, um, when, when you battle publicly with another member of the band, um, it's almost like it, it doesn't devalue the songs, but what it does is it almost taints it for the fans a little bit to believe that um, that maybe this wasn't created in a wholesome manner, meaning that, you know, it's kind of like you loving an artist and then finding out that 
they're like racist or sexist or homophobic behind the scenes. You can still like their music. And in fact, you and I have talked in the past about, you know, it, it, you know, somewhat, is it okay for radio stations to continue to play Michael Jackson's music, right. for instance? And it's like, yeah, there's a lot of people that can separate the personal and the professional, but I think Hall & Oates are going to be finding out really quickly which fans will actually stick through them. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the issue here is that, you know, as, as you point out, there is, there is, they're also selling a story, right? When, you know, Hall & Oates were selling an image of themselves as well as this duo. Mm-hmm. And now I love Hall & Oates. Their music isn't exactly profound, right? It's not earth shattering. It's not Dylan, right? So right. it may, they may rely a little bit on that sort of on that veneer that they've always had of being this cool duo, right? And and how they all sort of they look different and they sounded different. John Oates has a great voice as well, by the way. You don't hear it as much, but he also Daryl Hall is an amazing voice. But you're right, yeah. This, this could. I mean, I don't know how much damage it will do them in the long run, but it certainly can't be welcome. Yeah, and especially because you know there, there's a lot of um, you know in case of people don't know how they actually met right. was Daryl Hall and John Oates were part of the rival gangs growing up in Philadelphia and in one of the the battles that was happening on the roof of a building, people brought weapons. Like it was almost like a turf war that was going on. Um, both Daryl and John ran out of the fight and both into the same elevator and they didn't know one another. And that's where they first met. And they started talking about how absolute bonkers this night was and their love of music and Philly soul. And that's how they got together. So to find out that they're now kind of in this lawsuit, it's, it's like, not necessarily fate brought them together. Cause I kind of believe that in some cases. Um, but now that, that this has happened over money it's it almost it it's almost a little bit crude um because sometimes people don't want to know how much money the rolling stones have made or it it's a little bit gauche sometimes you know but it all depends on who you are too we all love talking about taylor swift making you know a billion dollars on this tour and that's okay but you couldn't talk about you know how much money certain artists make because it would just be you know Look, the Beatles, John and Paul were writing songs hoping that that song would buy them a pool or buy their mother the house. They would literally sit down and say, we're going to go write a house right now. And and that's where it is. So um, but it's interesting, though, you know, going back to to Simon and Garfunkel, part of the whole reason why I think that they were so successful in the 70s was because they had split up under yeah. such bad manners and, and such bad taste that when they got together for their reunion concert in Central Park and had like 600,000 people there, it was because they split up under such bad terms that made their fan base almost um, salivate over the idea that they could still reform again, even if right. it was just for one night. Tougher. I mean, I guess age has something to do with it, too. I was looking it up. Of course, Daryl Hall is my dad's age. Uh, he's 77. Uh, John Oates is my mom, mom's age. He's 75. Because I remember that from when a, a kid, knowing that they were born in the same years as my parents. <laughs> as my parents. I know how odd that is. You know what you're like when you're young. Uh, this, I mean, Your this parents is... actually toured with, with Hall & Oates, didn't yeah, they? There you go. They did. did yeah, they yeah, yeah. Up, yeah. O'Hara, O'Hara and Byrne, they were well known. Uh, they, <laughs> they had, had briefly had a hit on the, on the, on, you know, on, on the Canadian charts back in the right, late right. 70s. They, um, but it was interesting Thank to you see... for CanCon. <laughs> exactly. But I, I don't see how this, at this age, I don't see how this does them any favors. When, you know, if they were, if this had happened in 1983, then there may have been sort of this idea that, that you know, that there was a clamor 
clamoring for them to get back together. But now I, I wouldn't see that happening. I mean, I, I, I would go see them if they came to town for sure. Yeah, I and you're absolutely right. Age has a lot to do with it. You know, when you take a look at Liam and, and Noah Gallagher from Oasis, um, you know, where Liam has, you know, wanted to beat up Noah with the guitar and constantly refers to him online as a potato over social media. And Noah right. called his brother. Um, he, he's a he's a man with a spoon, you know, in a world of forks, you know, and or he, he's a he's he's got a fork in a, in a bowl of spoon or something yeah. like it, it was just. But they're still young, like they're still in their 40s, early, I would say late 40s by now. There's still time for them to get together. Oh, again. and the clamor for them to get back together. I mean, right. in and England, I mean, they the would money, sell out anything. Yeah, the money anything. must be it. The yeah. money is going to be absolutely astonishing when they get back together. And they've turned down anywhere between 30 and $50 million for a week's worth of shows. But they still have time. So I think we can still kind of laugh at their relationship a little bit. When it comes to somebody like, say, Ray Davies and Dave Davies of the Kinks, they're getting up there, too. In fact, they're probably older than than Daryl and John. Um, and they've never really managed to to get that friction back together again, where, you know, they were beating each other up silly back in the 60s when they were still having hits. Yeah. And their fighting was not uncommon. But they're at that age, too, where the fans that are hoping for the Kinks to get back together again, they're running out of time. Yeah. Absolutely. And brothers, hey, what is it with brothers and bands? Eric Alper is with us this half hour, publicist, publicist and music commentator. We're talking about uh, Hall and Oates. Wow. Uh, there seems to be, it's Hall versus Oates, as, as, and, and there's been a million puns. Of <laughs> Hall v. Oates. Hall v. Oates. I was saying, say it isn't so, or I can't go for that. There's lots <laughs> of them uh, this week. Eric, I mean, you deal a lot with bands. I mean, there must be, I've always wondered, and, and we brought up Oasis earlier, this clamor for them to get back together, and they still haven't done it. Um it must be difficult for bands, especially. I mean, you're, like Hall and Oates, their entire legacy is kind of together. I know, I know, D- Daryl Hall doesn't necessarily feel that way, but I think a lot of fans sort of think of them as two as one, the two of them. Um, yeah, yeah. There must be so much pressure on bands to sort of get get it together and go out there, please your fans, make the money, and stop fighting. But sometimes it just doesn't work. Yeah, and especially if you're coming into the band with your brother or sister, that's already marked by very intense animosity and deep-seated rival ri- rivalry over siblings. You know, when you take a look at somebody like Chris and Rich Robertson, for instance, of the Black Crows, they were fighting long before they got into a band. And in right. fact, the band just, you know, both creatively and personally just exasperated everything that had to do with them because their lack of brotherly love that they had for one another, even though that they, I'm sure that they loved one another. Um, but th- they kind of, you know, they kind of irked one another throughout their entire childhood. Yeah, they shouldn't work teenagers. together. Yeah, shouldn't right. Together. Yeah. It led to clashes over the artistic control. You know, the lead singer got more attention. The guitarist went out with somebody else and maybe missed a, a rehearsal. Um, they were getting all of the attention during interviews. Um, this person ended up getting the cover of the magazine. Oh, and the brother and the rest of the band didn't. So if you're walking in there with a strained relationship already, putting the spotlight on you worldwide and going out on tour and drugs and alcohol and girlfriends or boyfriends or wives or husbands and money just make all of those problems that much bigger. Yeah. And I guess that, that, and, and back catalogs must be a big issue these days, because of course we've talked about just the value of back catalogs and because there aren't much in the way of record sales anymore. And clearly if you're, you know, if you're, 
Daryl Hall or John Oates' age, you're in your mid to late 70s. You probably don't want to be touring 200 nights a year. Maybe you don't need the money. But in some senses, there aren't a lot of avenues now. And if you're looking out for your family and so on, I can imagine the back catalog thing becomes a pretty attractive one. And that I can see how that could dig up a lot of animosity over your legacy, who did the work, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things that bands don't say out loud that might come out, come out in a thing like this. I think Daryl Hall's already sort of intimated that he did most of the work, although John Oates shares a lot of the writing credits. Yeah. You, you know, and, and right in the middle of what you just said was really super important because when Tina Turner went out on tour um, for, you know, three decades after she had split with her husband, Ike, always in the back of her mind must have been when I'm singing this song, I'm still getting Ike paid, you know? And even when Ike beat her and left her and Tina had a lot of issues with the IRS and was broke and living in motels and had to literally beg neighbors for food. When she became successful after the private dancer album and started doing the greatest hits. And that led to Ike really getting a a, a windfall based on the songs that she was performing that has to, you know, build up those walls, even though that she was really never going to get back together with him. Um, As opposed to something like what wham, with George Michael and Andrew Ridgely. They were very, very good friends before they got together in a in a group and as a duo. Um, but after they split, Andrew Ridgely went on to, you know, his own world being a race car driver and just literally jet setting around the world, knowing that he mentally and physically helped George Michael get to his solo career just by being there for him. And you might not have seen it in the songwriting credits, but you realize that now you know why Last Christmas or Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go, their back catalog doesn't have any issues because everybody kind of wins in this. George Michael's estate still gets money. Andrew Ridgely still gets money because he was still getting writing credits, even though he, that he might've not contributed. So even though that they were really good friends, that probably helped them get through the moments where George Michael was going to go off on a solo tour, leaving his best friend behind. Yeah, I remember seeing, I watched that documentary recently, and it's so very, much, very much about, about the fa- fact that Andrew Ridgely was a very, very, that there there wouldn't have been a Wham or a George Michael without him. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess maybe that's what, maybe when, when you boil it down that way, that's what's disappointing about the Hall Notes thing is that you think of, of these duos and you hope against hope. They're like buddies that you don't know, right? And you think yeah. you hope against hope that their friendship, because it's been so lucrative and so creative and so pleasing for, for, for the, for fans, that their relationship stands the test of time because it sort of gives you faith in friendship. And when it, when it's revealed to be something different, it's just a little disappointing. Ah. Uh, the Wizard of Oz, right? You don't want them to pull. Don't pull the curtain. Don't, don't pull, pull the curtain. curtain. Don't you don't want to go curtain. there. Uh, Eric, as always, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. We'll talk soon. Speaking of back in the day, when I was growing up, my mom was a big rummage sale, secondhand store person. So I spent a lot of my youth sort of at rummage sales at churches right across Montreal. And of course, there's always been that economy when it comes to clothing, right? Um, if you want to get rid of something, you can either resell it, which is obviously easier to do these days because you can do it online, um, or you can sell it to, I suppose you could sell it to a consignment store or something along those lines. But a lot of it's just donated for charity, right? And that was always been this kind of market out there that takes these clothes and sells them for charity. Well, 
lo and behold, in the past little while, and this reselling is not new, but lo and behold, in the past little while, uh, big clothing retailers are starting to get into this into the game. And I think what's happened here now they obviously use some pretty altruistic marketing tactics to do this. It's about you know recycling your clothing. It's about saving the planet. It's about being you know it's basically about waste not want not, which is fine. Uh, but they're also inserting themselves into the life cycle of their products in a way that's beneficial to, to them, right? I mean, if they take your clothes, for instance, if they take your clothing back, they have a program whereby they can take back your clothing in exchange for giving you a discount on something else in their store. They're not only getting you to buy more of their stuff, they're also taking back what you've already bought from them for a relatively small price, presumably, at least in my experience, it always has been. And then they choose to do what they want with it afterwards. Now, there's nothing particularly nefarious about this, right? Although people much, don't much like the Ticketmaster resale program, uh, which exists. You can, I mean, Ticketmaster essentially sells, if you don't want them, they'll, they'll sell your tickets for you, right? Uh, I've never done that before. So I'm not 100% sure how it works, but uh, that's how it was explained. So we thought maybe we'd look a little, uh, Vas Bednar, who, who's a, who writes a great, a great, uh, a great Substack series that she writes articles there, uh, wrote a really interesting piece on this. I thought we would talk about it because to me it was interesting because, again, I spent a lot of time growing up in that secondhand clothing world, right, um, at rummage sales and consignment shops. My mom, if you bring my mom anywhere to this day, she'll find the charity shop. She always will. She'll always go in for a look. And she's one of those people who always finds great stuff. You know, some people go to places like that or, you know, for instance, a value village, which is a bit of a different creature, but, and never find a thing. My mom always finds great stuff at those things. So she's, she's a skilled, a skilled bargain hunter at those things. Um, so we thought we'd look at, look at, at how this whole, this whole thing about reselling and buying your clothes back from you and inserting yourself in the life cycle of your clothing actually works and whether or not it's a good idea or not. And also this week, and this is another thing Vass has been looking at a lot, is junk fees. So we weren't going to talk about this initially, but junk fees came up in the, in the, in the economic statement this week. And also Joe Biden in the States, they've been putting a big push on those, those junk fees. Junk fees are those fees that you end up paying that don't mean anything. Like, for instance, when airlines charge, charge pay, a kid to sit beside their parents, for instance, that kind of stuff, right? That just is, out, is often just outrageous stuff. So we'll talk about both those things. Vas Bednar is the founder of Regs to Riches, a senior fellow at uh, CIGI and the executive director at McMaster University's Master of Public Policy and Digital Society program. And she joins me now. Vas, thank you so much. Hey, nice to be talking again. So for decades now, I mean, people who buy stuff will sometimes bring it, you know, either sell it or sometimes they bring it to charity shops. I mean, basically, when you buy something, you own it. But uh, you found something. Uh, all of a sudden, clothing companies are noticing maybe there's some money to be made here. What's going on? Yeah, I feel like I'm 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 spotting a little bit of an of an early trend with these kind of resale markets. So certain clothing firms are moving to kind of reclaim that secondary market and what I mean is they've sort of formalized buyback programs. So buyback programs aren't too historically new. I think sometimes there've been promotions or, you know, trade in your older electronics for something new kind of creates a loop. Um, but now instead of reselling your Lululemon leggings or your Canada Goose parka yourself, you are encouraged to sell it back to the company that you bought it from. And I just think that's really fascinating because it allows a firm to sell the same item more than once, right? And they're really I, uh, capitalizing on that. Uh, anyway, yeah. From their point of view, I, I see that it makes sense. Uh, I mean, I guess the marketing technique in this is all is sort of the alt appealing to the altruistic, right? Circular economy, oh, yeah. good for the environment. That's how they're selling it. 
hundred percent. And, you know, I chewed on it for a while and was chatting about it with a, with a friend that I often research with Denise Hearn. Cause I sort of couldn't, I was like, who does this help? Who does this harm? Like maybe it's truly Pareto efficient. Maybe everyone's just better off, right? It's like, you're going through the official channel to resale. You're guaranteed a particular price, you know, Bob's your uncle. So in terms of, are there, are there negative aspects or negative externalities to this? I mean, there could be if this trend, you know, becomes more popular or you get locked in, like uh, I'm a newish parent and I've noticed that certain warranties I have for my stroller or whatever are invalidated if I sell that infrastructure to someone else. And maybe that's always been true, but why, like, why would that really be? Why are there not, why is that kind of protection from the company not upheld if, my item changes hands because a baby grew out of it or something like that. And with clothes, I just think, you know, it's almost like noticing, oh, people are reselling items more and more, especially in this time period where people are feeling pinched, like the, what got amplified in the last recession. And I know we're not officially, officially in a capital R recession, but post 2008, the big trend was extreme couponing. Do you remember this? There was like TLC learning channel shows on it. It was just a thing. Makes sense. I think reselling is becoming even more popular. People are, you know, looking for a bit of extra cash, cleaning stuff up, realizing they can earn a little bit from uh, items they're no longer using or purchases that, you know, weren't weren't smart. That's still savvy. At the end of the day, as long as money is going back in people's pocket, I think it's pretty good. But if I'm going to be penalized in some way for not selling my Timberlands through the you know, resale program, then I, then I think that's where the risk sort of on the horizon exists. Right. I, I suppose from, for those who wouldn't necessarily, if it was just going to lie, sit in someone's closet and then they think, oh, well, I can bring it back to said retailer and get a discount on my next purchase. I suppose in that sense, there's something good about it, but th- there is, there is a bit of a slippery slope here. What do you think the catch might be? Because clearly these mm. companies aren't in this necessarily for the, I, I don't want to cast dispersion on all companies, but altruism is not a business proposition as a rule. So what do you think they're in this? I mean, what, what do you think the catch could be? Uh, one catch. I mean, this is on a spectrum of like immediately bringing something back because you, you know, an immediate return because you regret the purchase to giving something away at the, at the other end of the spectrum or frankly renting. Right. So the catch, I think it's it's like it starts to feel like are we renting items we're purchasing when we purchase them for a premium, but then are encouraged to instead of passing them on, sharing, donating. Right. I think back to who this helps and who this harms. To the extent that for some people, the norm is donating a small bag of clothes during spring cleaning, passing these along, you know, other families can access these at significantly reduced prices. That's, I think, really great. There's a whole kind of subset of the economy that relies on that kind of circulation. So if we're we're taking away from that market just so people can be compensated for all of their goods, you know, that could that could be a negative aspect too. Yeah. In terms of the catch, I think it's really trying to assert control over recognizing that your items are coveted, are valuable. You know, the brand has kind of a strong name or is recognizable and so recognizable that people will are willing to come back to your website to purchase, you know, a dress or a winter jacket or a workout sweater that just didn't work for someone. I don't know at a reduced reduced price all that right. said i've also gotten really into like baby consignment stores do not buy too many new things for your baby 
You really don't need it. That's my ad. Sorry about That's that. That's your ad. No, no, absolutely. I, I, I mean, when you look at what companies do with this, I mean, I know there's a lot of, I mean, for instance, I returned my iPhone when I got a new iPhone, and I imagine it probably wasn't mm. worth much more than I got for it from, from Apple. Uh, but there is sort of this incentive that you have. It kind of ropes you in, right? I mean, that's that's the mm-hmm. whole point. You you buy the product, you bring the product back, you, you trade it in, you get something new, they get your product back to do with it what they please, right? Mm-hmm. And I imagine at some sense, this must make business sense for them too. And I guess the whole idea of what belongs to you and how how long do you have to be? In other words, when you leave the, the store with your item, the ownership isn't 100% anymore. You're expected to bring it back next time and trade it in for something else. Right. And I think you're you're hitting on something really important, right? Trading in keeps you kind of locked in a little bit in, you know, in terms of recurring revenue and coming back, whereas these buyback programs are, you know, you're either getting store credit or cash to say, again, Lululemon has a fairly popular program. You know, you've purchased something, either it doesn't work for you or it's gently used, you can sell it back. And then you are also back to your question about what's the what's the downside or what's the catch? The catch could also be, you know, instead of getting I don't know, $50 on Facebook Marketplace, you now have store credit. So you're locked into that brand's economy to spend that cash versus getting, I don't know, $100 for your Canada Goose winter jacket from three years ago that you kept in great shape, you know, getting a getting a credit that you can only use at that store versus cash. So I think that is that is another kind of uh, element to think about that I hadn't thought about until you asked me. So thanks. Right. Well, I mean, like all consumer stuff, right? Just do your research and make sure it works for you. And if you like to give yourself to a charity shop, for instance, a true charity shop, by the way, maybe you should continue doing that because there is that sort of circular economy that exists uh, that helps charities out as well. Uh, how's Canada doing on this one? I don't feel like we've been nearly as vocal about cracking down on these things. No, we actually, so we snuck in a few lines about junk fees in this year's budget. And I think that was probably a little bit political because Biden was coming to visit a few days later. Um, in 2021, there are a couple of lines from Deputy Prime Minister Chrystia Freeland's mandate letter that gesture at what I think are junk fees, but go to bank fees. Two elements she's being charged with to advance legislation to enhance the powers of the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada to review bank fees and charges and to to require adjustments if they're excessive and to continue to engage with stakeholders to lower the average cost of interchange fees for merchants. So that's more a small business element in terms of how is Canada actually doing? We don't totally know. We did something pretty cool and important with drip pricing, which is often conflated with junk fees. So drip pricing is sort of when you see a price advertised online, uh, common for an airline carrier for your flight. And then as you click through to actually select your seat or whatever, you know, all these charges get added on or booking a hotel room, and there's no way to achieve the price that was advertised. It sort of hooks you in and locks you in. Canada made that explicitly illegal in budget 2022, no matter the size of the company, which is like pretty cool. It sort of says that as a behavior. So back to junk fees, again, really not sure. There's a case right now with Cineplex on drip pricing saying that the convenience fee that Cineplex charges people when they book a movie ticket online is a form of drip pricing. Now to some people, that's also a junk fee, right? To pay a firm each time that you are booking a ticket online, the f- the firm says, oh, you know, we need to recoup the costs of uh, updating our digital digital infrastructure. Other people see this as a form of labor, right? You're you're paying fewer humans to sell me a ticket at the cash because I'm yeah. going to do it online and charging you um, for and charging you for the privilege, right? Which exactly, is, which seems a bit exactly. insidious to me, but yes. 
But, uh, you know, the time is perfect to actually take on junk fees, hidden and bogus charges. And in terms of being able to loop people in and crowdsource a little bit, super important. I think people are getting way more eagle-eyed and I see it every time there's a major concert released, you know, the Ticketmaster conversation. Forget that we have Taylor Swifties hot on the case of Ticketmaster's junk fees. Um, but I think people are, people's blood is really boiling as well, right? There's all these different ways we're kind of tricked and trapped when we're in an e-commerce situation and, and junk fees seem like an easy political win that would have cross-partisan support. So I hope Canada does more and soon. Easy to do because I know retailers and obviously anybody who charges these fees justifies these fees, uh, you know, backwards and forwards. So it, is it easy to crack down on this stuff? I think we're probably going to echo a lot of what the FTC is doing, who has been kind of leading the charge on junk fees. I'm also sort of hard pressed to come up with many junk fee examples that are uniquely Canadian. So on the one hand, we can ride the coattails of our neighbor because if they're able to curb Ticketmaster through a major antitrust case, hopefully there's, you know, spillover effects for us. Um, but again, no one else is going to do our homework for us. I think another way to think about junk fees is actually the grocery code of conduct, which we don't know for sure if it's going to go forward, but that really starts to call out arbitrary price inflation of kind of the tolls or taxes along the agri-food supply chain. You could argue that some of these are junk fees. They are charged because they can, you know, the firm has some power, people are kind of otherwise captive and and can't necessarily determine if this is like a real legitimate uh, charge. Well, as always, buyer beware and reseller beware. Vass, thank you. Thank you.